spread his gracious rule to the ends of the earth. And he does it through his people. And uh, this morning we're going to see him uh, doing that through uh, the Apostle Paul to this city in Corinth. So would you read with me Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, a recently uh, come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, six months teaching the word of God among them. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to open up your word and hear you as you speak to us. We ask, O oh God, that you would um, incline our hearts towards your word. And we ask that you would uh, open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things in your word. And that you would satisfy us deeply, O oh God, with your steadfast love. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, one of the things that is really central to what it means to be a Christian uh, is that you are actually a citizen of God's kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God is somewhat of a technical word, but it really just is uh, the realm of, of Jesus' gracious rule. And so uh, the kingdom of God is the place where you experience his blessing, uh, his grace, uh, his healing, and his salvation. And Paul, in Acts 18, he comes to this city of Corinth as a herald, of this kingdom, of the kingdom of Jesus. And as you read a passage like this, you might think, well, there are aspects of what Paul that is doing here that are very unique to him and to his time and to his place. But whenever we read uh, the Bible, and particularly Acts, this recorded history, we don't just read it as third-party observers, uh, but we actually read it as those who are uh, called to continue to spread God's gracious rule today. And so, as we look at this passage this morning, as you ask, I want you to be thinking about, how can I be someone who is spreading God's grace? How can I be someone who is bestowing his blessing? How can I be someone who is making known the saving rule of Jesus? And I think what we have here in Acts 18 is something of a model for thinking through that answer. Uh, what Paul is going to give us in, in brief is really just four principles and, and practices uh, for how God's gracious rule spreads. And those four things, which are printed in the, in the bulletin, if you appreciate outlines and structure, uh, are a strategic place, a saving message, a supportive network, and a sovereign God. We'll look at these, these four little uh, pieces briefly here. Well, first, we start with a strategic place. 
As you just come into Acts 18, where we learn that Paul has just gone to Corinth, and he has just left another city, another great city, uh, which is Athens. And, and uh, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, he doesn't tell us why Paul has decided to go to Corinth. But if you look at Paul's journeys as a whole, you kind of zoom out and take into consideration the places that he chose to go, you begin to see a pattern emerge. Because Paul was uh, gripped by one thing. He wanted as many people as possible to know that Jesus is king. And so if you, want to know, if you want to get that message out to as many people as possible, where, would you might, where might you go? Well, you might go to a city. And that's exactly what Paul does throughout his missionary journeys. He prioritizes uh, major cities of the empire, especially those that are Roman colonies. And Corinth fits the bill for both. Uh, next to Ephesus, Corinth was the, uh, the most uh, important Roman city that Paul visited. Uh, one scholar notes that by the time Paul showed up here, that Corinth was well on the way to becoming the largest, most prosperous city in Greece. And so it was this uh, capital city in Rome, and it was a communications hub. Uh, people would come in and go out, and everything that came into Corinth would end up everywhere in, in the uh, empire as well. And so Paul says, this is a perfect place to bring the saving message of Jesus. And the reason why I point this out for us this morning is because I think it suggests to us that as you are praying and you're planning and you're pursuing endeavors to try to see God's gracious rule go forth, we do well to ask, uh, where is a strategic place that we can do this? It was mentioned earlier that I'm currently serving at Rutgers University as a pastor to college students. And I've really been convinced that the, the university is one of the most strategic places to be able to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to just put on for a moment your kind of sociology caps with me and think about uh, the American university. Um, the university is this huge cross-section of people from a variety of culture, classes, spiritual backgrounds, and for four years, they're all just in one place, eating together, uh, studying together, playing together, all in this controlled and contained environment. And not only that, but over the course of the, those four years, these young people are going to be making some of the biggest decisions of their life. They're going to be deciding, what kind of values do I want to adopt? Uh, what do I want to live for? Uh, where, where do I want to give all my time and my energy to? What are the kind of people that I want to associate with? And you add to this one other fact, which is that during this period of life, they are more open than they likely ever will be to considering major questions of meaning, purpose, morality, and so on. Barna found that 71% of people who uh, change their faith do so before the age of 30. And so the university is a very unique place. And the college campuses of our day have, uh, are, are populated by the most um, religious, religiously unaffiliated and diverse generation that this country has ever seen. And so it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to bring the gospel to them. Now you might say, great, glad you're at Rutgers, but where does that leave the rest of us? Uh, do you have to be in, in, a, in a city or in a place of commerce uh, or a university to be able to do strategic work for the gospel? Not at all. Not at all. 
Think just for a moment with me about uh, Paul's life. I mentioned how he prioritized cities, but uh, that's not the only place that he thought was strategic. In fact, in the letter to the church in Philippi, he's writing this letter from a Roman prison. Not exactly a strategic place, right? He's imprisoned. But this is what he says. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. See, Paul could be in a city like Corinth, or he could be rotting in a Roman prison, and yet he says, I'm doing strategic ministry because the gospel is going forth. And so wherever God has placed you, maybe you are in a, in a, in a, a place of, of cultural influence, maybe you're an educator or someone working uh, in commerce, a real mover and shaker, or you might be like, I just... I don't know if what I'm doing is really all that important. Know that wherever God has placed you, he has kingdom work for you to do. That wherever you are, uh, there is righteousness to be cultivated, there is evil to be overcome, uh, and there is good news to be shared. And wherever those things are happening, the kingdom of God is going forth. But the point that I want to make is really that insofar as God does give you the freedom to plan, Insofar as you do have the ability, there's wisdom here in following Paul's pattern. But what does Paul do once he has really identified Corinth and arrived there? What would you do if you showed up into this city like Corinth? What would be the first thing that you might do? Well, Paul goes where the people are, and we learn in verses 4 and 5 that he begins to reason and to persuade and to preach this saving message that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah just means anointed one, which is a reference primarily to the fact that Jesus is king. And so Paul shows up at Corinth and he starts saying, here is King Jesus. Here is the king that is the answer to every ache of the human heart. Whose gracious rule is the very thing that all of us yearn yearn for. And it's a wonderful reminder for us that the primary means that that God advances his kingdom in the world is through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. That if you want to see God's rule spread, then what you do is you point people to Jesus. The one who through his death and through his resurrection has made it possible for us who are, are sinners by nature to become sons and daughters by grace. To become children. This is why in 1 Corinthians 2, as as Paul was reflecting on his ministry recorded here in Acts 18, he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul wanted people to know. And you notice that that this message wasn't always received favorably. Uh, In in the case of some of the the leaders of the synagogue in verse 4 or verse 5 or or verse 6, rather, (laughs) that he was opposed. They opposed and they reviled him. But then there are those like uh, Claudius and Titius Justus who believe along with their whole household and are baptized. And this is what happens when the saving message that Jesus is king goes out. There will be those who will oppose and who will revile and who will say, Jesus is not king, I am king. Or Caesar is king, or whatever political person happens to be in power. But there are others who will realize that Jesus, in fact, is king. 
And that to come under his rule is life and his blessing. But here's what you need to see, is that regardless of how people respond, Paul does not change his message. See, it could have been easy for Paul to be like, okay, let's try the Jesus is king line here. All right, that didn't work. Let's see, uh, maybe we'll start a food pantry, or uh, maybe we'll try something else. There, may, there might be a better way to try to advance the kingdom of God here. No, he continues to proclaim the message. And so as you think about your role as a witness to Jesus in the world, what are you going to lead with? What is going to be kind of the, your go-to, uh, the thing that's going to guide and to inform your vision? Are, are you, is, your most, is the thing that consumes you most is trying to uh, create human flourishing? Is the thing that concerns you most uh, trying to kind of launch a moral crusade to sort of mend the moral fabric of our nation? Uh, perhaps you think, well, we just want to be a place where people can feel at home. Now, all of those things are not necessarily bad things. But they are not what Paul would call matters of first importance. Paul says, I delivered to you that which I received, which is of first importance, which is that Christ, was die- that Christ died and was raised for us and for our salvation. That is the thing that we lead with. Because in order for God's kingdom to go forth, people have to love the king. And that is what Paul is devoted to. Paul wants people to see Jesus Christ and see him crucified and realize that it is for them. And that he's not just a king, but that he's a king with a cross. Right? This is the, the great beauty and sweetness of the gospel. Paul's not saying, here's the next despot. No, he's saying, here's the humble king who doesn't ride to his throne, but stumbles to a cross. He's the humble king. He's the kind of king that all of us would want to follow. And so perhaps this morning you are someone who knows Jesus not as king. Perhaps you know him as a good teacher, a moral influence. Uh, Perhaps you think he's just, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But I would hope that you hear this morning that that he he is the crucified king who has died and was raised for you. And that he's calling you to enroll yourself into his kingdom through faith and repentance in him. See, this is what I really want Rutgers students to know. It's what you should want your neighbors and your coworkers and your family and friends to know because this is a message that saves. I'll just show you real quickly how this message saves. It's so striking that we find that Paul moves from a Jewish synagogue and then he goes to the house right next door to a Gentile. If you know anything about Jew and Gentile relations in the first century, they were not good. Okay, uh, these were these were neighbors who would have hated each other. You know, this would have been like the worst neighbor situation you could have had. And yet, we find out that Titius Justus, this Gentile, and Claudius, this Jewish ruler of a synagogue, both of them are enrolled in the family of God. See, this is what the message of Jesus can do. It can overcome barriers that have been raised up by any number of factors, and it can reconcile into a family. It's a holistic salvation. And how beautiful it is when we see it worked out in the world. And so Paul comes to Corinth, and he concerns himself with this saving message. And you might think, well and good, I'm not Paul. I'm not reasoning and persuading 
and preaching to people. I'm not this great apostle. Uh, So what place is there for me? What part should you play? Well, there's a very important part that you play. And that brings us to our third point, which is a supportive network. Notice in verse 2 that we find that when, uh, when Paul comes to Corinth, he immediately finds these two people, Aquila and Priscilla, and he begins to live with them because he was of the tra- same trade as them. In other words, Paul comes to this brand new city and he finds some Christians who provide him with hospitality. And not only that, they actually give him some of their clientele. They say, hey, we're the same tent. We're both tent makers. You need to make a living. You can, uh, here's some referrals. Go follow up with them. We already got the quotes. You can go build them a tent, you know. Maybe it went like that. But they're, they're aiding him, right? But that's not all. You notice in verse 5 that Silas and Timothy, they come from Macedonia. And it reads in the ESV that, that um, Paul, when they came, that he was occupied with the word, um, I actually, it's, it's a hard word to translate. I think the NIV captures it even better. The NIV says that when Silas and Timothy came, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. In other words, what happened was that up until the arrival of Silas and Timothy, Paul was working Monday through Friday as a tent maker. And then on Saturday, on the Sabbath, he'd put down his tools and he would go and he would reason and he would persuade. But Silas and Timothy show up And what they do is they bring with them a financial gift. We read of this in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9. Paul says that when I was with you and I needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I need. See, Paul was able to put down his tools and to devote himself entirely to this task of gospel proclamation because of the financial support of the saints in Macedonia. And the reason why I'm pointing all of this out is because although Paul is the one preaching, the only reason he is able to preach is because he is surrounded by this network of support. Right here are Aquila and Priscilla. They've just been kicked out of their home. They're trying to scrape by, make a living in a new place, and yet they welcome Paul into their home. They give him some of their clients. They help him to to make ends meet. And they're not alone, right? Right? Even the churches in Macedonia, who Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, that they gave out of their own poverty. They weren't, you know, bankrolling him because they had loads and loads of cash. They were in in straits themselves, and yet they gave out of their poverty to support this work of the gospel. And even Silas and Timothy, they traveled from Macedonia to Corinth. And now this wasn't like, let me go to the airport and hop on United Flight, which would probably take just as long nowadays anyways. Uh, But... uh, This was a a treacherous travel across land and sea to get this gift to Paul. And so all of these people, Priscilla, Aquila, Silas, Timothy, these saints in Macedonia, they are supporting and forwarding and advancing the kingdom through their support of Paul. And so people of God, you have a part to play in the advance of God's kingdom here and Randolph and in Morris County, wherever you might call home, through your hospitality, through your service, through your generosity, you are not just making it possible for this church to continue, but you are actively participating in God's mission in the world. You have a part to play. I think about this all the time as I go to Rutgers. I, I might be the only one technically there on campus, 
But I'm not there by myself. There is a whole army of people behind me who are praying and giving and, and serving and enabling that work to go forth. And so I want you to ask yourself this morning, what gifts has God given me? What graces has God given me? And how uh, can I support the work of the gospel with them? Whether it's here at Hope or at a, mission, a ministry like RUF at Rutgers, wherever it might be, God has given you things. And he's called you to use them for the advance of his kingdom. But there's one final element that we need to consider this morning. Because as you think about advancing God's kingdom in the world, you are definitely going to face two things. Opposition from without and discouragement from within. And you see both of those things going on here in this moment. And when this happens, how are you going to keep going on? How are you going to push forward? Well, we need to be reminded, just as Paul needed to be reminded, of the ruling and reigning God over everything that we do. Look again with me at verses 9 through 10. It says that the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Right? Things were not all that easy at Corinth. Paul was opposed. He was reviled by those who were in the synagogue. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that when he came to this church, when he came to this city, that he came with weakness, great fear, and trembling. That might not be the Apostle Paul you imagine, but that's how he came to this city. In weakness, great fear, and trembling. And in light of this, what kept him going? Well, the thing that kept him going were these sweet, sweet words of his king. Don't be afraid. Keep on preaching, for I am with you. If you read the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, this is God's message over and over again to his people. Every time that a leader is called to act or do something, the first thing that God says is, do not be afraid. I am with you. Why? Because we are fearful people. It's hard. It is hard to be a Christian. It is hard to be a witness to the risen Jesus. But he will always say to you, you don't have to be afraid because I am with you. This is what Jesus said to his disciples on that mountain after he was raised, right? Go and make disciples of all nations and behold, I am with you until the end of the ages. And this is a comforting assurance that you need that wherever you go, whatever you do, when you are engaged in kingdom work, the king is with you and he is for you. You know, some of you might be in vocational spaces or in family settings where you feel like it is almost impossible to live as a faithful citizen of Jesus. Maybe you feel the opposition. You experience the marginalization. And you wonder, how can I do anything but just survive here? Well, hear these words of your Lord. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking, for I am with you. But there's one other element in this word of assurance. He says that no one is, the Lord says to Paul, no one is going to attack you or harm you because I have many people in this city. It's a bit of an odd phrase because Paul's just got here. <laughs> Who are these many people that, that he's speaking about? Uh, why, what, what is this? There's no great congregation at Corinth. As far as we know, it's, it's Titius, Justice, Claudius, and his family, and Priscilla and Aquila. So what does he mean when he says that I have many 
people here. Well, I think the point being made is not related to the present quantity of people there, but it's actually a point that is related to God's knowledge of the gospel's success at Corinth. Right? In other words, Paul is told, keep on proclaiming the good news because there are people here who, although they have yet to believe, they will believe. And I know they will believe. Because, as Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they answer me. And I find such amazing comfort to know that not only is the Lord with you, but the Lord has his people. And when you open your mouth, and you speak the words of life, things happen. Not because you're really persuasive, not because you're really good at marketing, not because you really know how to answer every objection and argument, but because as you speak those words of gospel life, Jesus is speaking. And his spirit goes forth, and it works in the hearts of hearers, and they are renewed. And so this is why I could go to a place like Rutgers with 36,000 undergraduate students, many of whom are apathetic at best, antagonistic at worst, and just share the good news of Jesus because I know that he has many people there. And it's what can keep you going in the face of discouragement as well. And so family of God, know that he is with you, he will protect you, and he knows his own. And so you don't have to be silent. And so the kingdom of God is advancing. It's advancing here in Randolph. It's advancing at Rutgers. It's advancing throughout the world. God is at work, and his purposes will prevail. You know what's so amazing? You get to participate in that. (laughs) That he's actually inviting you to be a part of that, to think strategically about where you are investing your time and your talents and your resources, to ask, how can I support the work that God is doing in the world? And who can I share this saving message with? And when you're fearful, when you're frightened, remember that God is with you, that he is for you, and that his word is powerful. And so we can pray, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's pray even towards that end. Our Father, we thank you that it is you who bring in your kingdom, that we don't pray, help us build your kingdom, but we pray, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we we desire greatly that it would be on earth as it is in heaven.